Imagine being present at the miracle of the Red Sea, the, the parting of the Red Sea. Imagine what a dramatic shift of emotion that would have been. I mean, first, Israel, this nation of slaves, is permitted by Pharaoh to leave Egypt. And so there's an extreme excitement. These people who have only known slavery are on the journeying towards freedom for the first time in generations. But then as they approached the Red Sea, they realized Pharaoh must have changed his mind, which he did. And when he did, he deployed his chariots to go and hunt down Israel and bring them back to slavery or worse. So from this high of experiencing a freedom your people haven't known for generations to feelings of being abandoned, terror, maybe worst of all, feeling duped for trusting in God. Some of them say to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians. Why did you do this? Moses, though, was not terrified. He trusted in the Lord. He said, do not be afraid. Stand firm. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to keep still. And then one of the most magnificent and marvelous things in all of human history happened. God intervenes in a very dramatic and miraculous way, and the Red Sea is parted in two. Israel escapes as, on, as if on dry land or on dry land. And when Egypt, when the soldiers of Egypt pursue them, the waters uh, collapse over them, definitively freeing Israel from slavery. This is no myth or fairy tale. This isn't a story we tell ourselves to make us feel better. It's a historical event recorded in Exodus in which God intervenes in a dramatic way to fight for his people and to save them. Now, I mentioned this episode at the Red Sea because it's talked about in our first reading. In fact, the miracle at the Red Sea is talked about throughout the Old Testament. It's seen as this foundational event in Israel's history. In our first reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah, the Lord, speaking through Isaiah, recalls how he opened a way in the sea and snuffed out the powerful army of Pharaoh. But then the Lord says, the events of the past, the things of long ago, they're nothing compared to the something new that I'm about to work. God is saying, I'm not done dramatically and miraculously intervening in human history. I'm not done fighting for my people. I'm not done saving them. He is going to initiate a new exodus, an even greater one than the first. In the marvelous deeds done in the first exodus, they're a pattern and a prophecy of the future when the Lord will do battle for us in a greater way and free us from an even greater enemy in slavery. That enemy is not an earthly tyrant, but a sin, death, and the devil. Christ himself will come to free us from this enemy, this slavery. He will fight for us, and by his cross and resurrection, he will set us free. And then, just as Israel was freed from slavery by the waters of the Red Sea, so we will be 
we are freed from slavery to sin, death, and the devil in the waters of baptism. Waters of baptism, with the waters of baptism, the Lord fights for us and gives us a share in this victory. And then in our gospel, we get a concrete example of the spiritual liberation Christ is going to bring in this new exodus with the woman caught in adultery. You know, the Pharisees and the, and the scribes, they bring her to Jesus and they say, the law of Moses says she needs to be stoned. What do you say? They're trying to trap Jesus. If Jesus says, stone her. Yeah, Moses said that. Let's stone her. Well, he'll get arrested because it's illegal for anyone but the Romans to execute someone. That's why later on, when Caiaphas and the Pharisees decide the time has come to kill Jesus, they don't crucify him uh, by themselves. They go to Pilate and get Pilate to do it, who's a Roman. So if Jesus says stone her, he gets arrested, faces serious consequences. But if he says don't stone her, then the Pharisees can discredit him as being against the law of Moses, and his popularity will be destroyed. It's a cunning trap, but it's one that Jesus turns on its head uh, with one turn of the phrase. He says to them, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And by saying that, he's putting the responsibility for the execution squarely on the shoulders of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, perhaps the scribes and Pharisees thought they were without sin. They weren't, but maybe they thought that. But because the Romans would arrest them, they didn't dare attempt to execute her. Alternatively, if they didn't throw stones, they would be admitting that they themselves are sinners. And so this trap is turned around on them. And in the end, the Pharisees, they choose the shame of being outwitted in public rather than arrest or worse by the Romans. However, on another level, we can see the actions of the Pharisees as pointing towards um, the role of Satan, uh, the actions of Satan in our life. They stand as the accuser of this woman. And that word Satan actually means the accuser. The, the Pharisees accuse this woman of having sinned grievously, and they argue that she deserves death as a result. Now, Satan first tempts us, right? He tries to get us to reach after some forbidden fruit, do something that we know is wrong, we know we shouldn't do, but part of us wants to uh, anyways. Tries to get us to rationalize. And then, once we've given in and reached for that forbidden fruit, he goes from tempter to accuser. Look what you did. You're a terrible person. Nobody will forgive you. God will certainly not. And he heaps this guilt on us, and he tries to drive us to despair, try to drive us to a point where we believe we are hopeless, beyond even the power of God to save. Perhaps the woman caught in adultery felt a little like Israel did on the banks of the Red Sea when the chariots uh, caught up with them. They felt abandoned and terror-stricken, duped for trusting in God. But then the Lord fought for the Israelites, and here he fights for the woman caught in adultery. He scatters the accusers by his word and then forgives her, saying, I do not condemn you, go and sin no more. And he does the same for us. In baptism, he wipes away the guilt of original sin, and then he 
personal sin when we're baptized, and then in the sacrament of reconciliation, he again fights for us. He again frees us from sin, death, and the devil. Just as with one phrase, the Lord broke the mob of accusers ready to stone a woman for her sin, so too he will scatter the accuser, Satan, in the sacrament of reconciliation. We are now in the midst, in the stretch run of this holy season of Lent. We're going to celebrate soon the most sacred and holy days of the year. These readings are a reminder that we need to put our trust in the Lord. He will do marvelous things for us if we put our trust in him. If we put our trust in him, he will come through for us in the end. He will not leave us hanging and duped and abandoned. Though he will stretch us, and he will ask us to trust him in extraordinary situations, he will come through for us in the end. He will fight for us. He has our good in mind. So in these final weeks of Lent, let's resolve to put our faith and trust in the Lord more intensely. And especially when we feel duped or abandoned, knowing that he is faithful to his promises, his word is good that he will fight for us and give us a share in his victory if we trust in him.